0: This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers. The True Cry podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the 10th and final episode of Season 9. This season has certainly flown by, hasn't it? Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Two facts that sound like bullshit Did you know the Eiffel Tower grows six inches during the summer? Things what dreams are made of. Due to thermal expansion, the metal structure of the Eiffel Tower expands when exposed to heat, causing it to grow up to six inches taller during those summer months. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. I ought to be jealous of the tower. She is more famous than I am. That was said by Gustav Eiffel? Eiffel. <laughs> Eiffel. His company designed the Eiffel Tower and also contributed to building the Statue of Liberty in New York. This case was suggested by listener Keisha Blackstone via the contact form on britishmurders.com. We're back in London this week, a place we've visited many times before, so I'm going to change things up slightly with my facts. This story is over a century old, occurring in 1912, a year in which several historical events took place. Therefore, here are five quickfire facts about 1912 in Britain. Number one, the most famous event of that year was the sinking of the RMS Titanic in April after it hit an iceberg in the Atlantic Ocean. Number two, the General Post Office took over the National Telephone Company on January 1st, effectively nationalising the UK telecommunications industry. Number three, explorer Captain Robert Falcon Scott and his four companions reached the South Pole on January 17th, but were left devastated when they realised a Norwegian team, led by Roald Amundsen, had arrived there before them, 34 days before them. Captain Scott and his team succumbed to the harsh conditions, with their bodies being found between February and March. Number four, 1912 was a turning point for the suffragettes as they escalated their fight for the right for women to vote by undertaking a window smashing and vandalism campaign. And finally, number five, the Cadeby Main Pit disaster occurred on July 9th when two explosions at the South Yorkshire Coal Pit killed a total of 91 men. The estimated UK population in 1912 was 45.3 million The current UK population is around 69.1 million for reference, which means there's been an average population increase of roughly 214,000 per year since 1912. Given this story took place 111 years ago, it wouldn't be fair if I didn't lay some groundwork regarding what life was like in Britain in that era. It'll provide some much-needed context because, quite frankly, most of this story contains elements that would not fly in today's society. To research what happened, I used old newspaper articles for roughly 90% of my research. As you can imagine, the language used back in the early 1900s wasn't exactly PC. I've taken the liberty of heavily updating the terminology used in those original reports because the show would likely get cancelled if I didn't. In 1912, British society was still heavily influenced by the class system. You belonged either to the upper, middle or working class, with the latter living in abject squalor, despite making up the majority of the population. Things were on the up slightly, to be fair. The Old Age Pensions Act 1908 allowed those over the age of 70 to claim a weekly pension allowance, while the National Insurance Act of 1911 introduced a form of social security, the concept of which being benefits based on contributions paid by those who were employed as well as their employers. Car manufacturing was becoming a booming industry as the traditional textiles, coal mining and shipbuilding industries wound down, but the working conditions continue to be lacking, even with newly formed trade unions doing their utmost to advocate for their improvement. The main social issue I want to focus on this week is racism. It's something that was a prevalent and deeply ingrained social issue at the time, and it sickens me that, as a society, we can still fall foul of those tendencies to this day. Britain's colonialism was at its peak in 1912, with an estimated 23% of the world's population being controlled by King George V and his empire. The ramification of Britain's hold over a quarter of the world still echoes in modern times, something I can attest to given the name of my podcast. When I first started to promote my show on Twitter, it's mind-boggling to think how many negative responses I got along the lines of I don't want to listen to a podcast about all the people the British Empire killed, thanks. Or, fuck off, you colonialist bastard. (laughs) True story. Getting back to the issue of racism, let me first explain that two of the three main characters in this week's story, a married couple called Harry and Annie Gross, were black. The third character, Jessie McIntosh, was a white woman. Britain's imperialist mindset contributed to the widespread belief in their racial superiority and the subsequent inferiority of non-white people. Have you ever heard of the Aliens Act? I hadn't until researching this story, and I'm kind of glad. The original paperwork for the Aliens Act 1905 can be read on the UK government's website, and its opening line, dated August 11th, 1905, reads, An Act to Amend the Law with Regard to Aliens. Now, it's not referring to Martians, such as those present in H.G. Wells as the War of the Worlds, which was released seven years prior. Aliens in this context means undesirable immigrants. The act was designed to limit the immigration of Eastern European Jews into Britain, although it's likely they weren't the only ones deemed undesirable when they reached our shores. If you were a non-white person living in 1912 Britain, you weren't only subjected to significant discrimination and prejudice, you were also segregated. This was most evident in the areas of housing and employment. Many landlords refused to rent houses to non-white tenants, leading to the creation of ethnic enclaves in major UK cities such as London, Liverpool and Cardiff. Overcrowding and poor living conditions were common, and the country's lack of action when it came to racially induced violence and hate crimes only made matters worse. Work-wise, it wasn't just men that secured the best paid jobs. If you weren't white, you weren't alright, as it were. That meant that non-white workers typically worked low-paid, manual labour jobs and leaned heavily into the entertainment industry to make ends meet. A huge turning point occurred in 1913 when John Archer became the first black mayor of a borough in London but we sticking with 1912 for now. That concludes my rather high-level overview of what life was like in Britain back then, especially for the non-white population, and I hope it's provided you with some much-needed context for the story to follow. It makes sense for me to first discuss Annie Gross, one of the aforementioned three main characters in this story. Born in the USA in circa 1883, Annie stood six feet and two inches tall, which towers over the average female height in the USA of five foot four, and that's a 2023 average. To be fair, the average height for women during this story's timeline was five foot three, but being as tall as Annie was was a much rarer sight than it is now. Some of the newspaper articles i read described Annie as being gigantic and well-proportioned, the latter adjective owing to her muscular physique. As I said before, Annie was married to a man named Harry Gross, with their wedding taking place in the Illinois city of Chicago in 1903. Two years before they tied the knot, it appears as though they had a child together. I say that because one report from 1913, the year in which Annie was convicted of killing Jesse, stated that her case was made all the more tragic because she had a 12-year-old child at home. I only read that in one article, and it's not exactly a major part of the story, so whether or not it's true is neither here nor there. Harry Gross was a member of the American Ragtime Octet, a group of eight singers whose musical style was at its peak from the 1890s to the 1910s. He left for London in 1908, opting to leave Annie in their New York home. However, he sent for her a year after arriving in the nation's capital so that she could live with him at 28 Lyle Street, just off Leicester Square. They lived there until their relationship broke down in 1912. The main reason for the end of their marriage seems to have been due to Harry meeting the third person in our story, 33-year-old Jesse McIntosh, who also went by the name Jesse Trix. Being a young actress, Jessie opted to use the stage name of McIntosh over her birth name of Trix, although the reason for doing so is unknown. I suppose the term trick relates to actions that are intended to deceive someone, so she might have opted to change her name to avoid its negative connotations. She had appeared on the stage on and off for a good few years and was semi-well-known in the industry. Annie would later testify in court that incidents of domestic violence were also something that led to her committing the horrific act of killing Jessie in 1912. Annie claimed that Harry had physically assaulted her on two separate occasions during their marriage with a metal fire poker, the lasting effects of which were displayed for all to see by way of scars on her lips. Harry also is alleged to have thrown a hammer at his wife at one point, although his aim was off and the tool missed its intended target. After meeting Jessie in October 1911, Harry became infatuated with her. According to Annie, Harry said he felt like he had been asleep for the last 10 years with her, and that he had now met his one true love. Starting a new relationship with Jessie wasn't all about physical attraction, though, if Annie's testimony is to be believed. Harry reportedly told his wife that Jessie would be able to do more for him and open new doors due to her being a white woman. He would soon leave his wife and move a quarter of a mile up the road to Wardour Street in Soho to live with his new lover. Annie was left without a pot to piss in, quite literally. Harry refused to give her any money, despite her obtaining a separation order, and insisted that if she wanted to earn her way, she'd take to the streets and become a sex worker. She was forced to live a life of crime just to survive, while selling whatever clothes she could and begging her friends to give generously, which they apparently did. Annie Carter, who annoyingly shares the same first name as our villain, was a landlady at number 2 Corum Street, just off Russell Square. The property was a boarding house that was frequented by black music hall artists and boxers, who were referred to as pugilists at the time. I kept seeing that word during my research and had to make a note of it. I had no idea what it meant. Annie Carter met Annie Gross at the start of 1912, and if I'm not mistaken, the latter may have at one point lived at the boarding house owned by the former. It makes sense, given their friendship and Annie Gross's predicament. Annie Gross pleaded with the landlady to never let a room out to her husband, especially if he turned up with Jesse on his arm, but being a businesswoman, the landlady essentially said she was not in a position to refuse a paying lodger. In early October of that year, Annie's worst fears became a reality when Harry began paying for a room at the boarding house and stayed there with Jessie. If we Craig David slightly to August of that year, we begin to see how this dark story slowly began to escalate into a violent affair with huge he-said-she-said overtones. At that time, Jessie lived at Orsett Street in Kensington and she claimed that Annie attacked her out of the blue late one evening. Jessie's story goes that she was walking on her own between half eleven and midnight when Annie surprised her from behind and withdrew a huge knife from a jacket sleeve. Threatening her love rival, Annie is alleged to have said, You dirty white, insert vulgar word here, I am going to do you in. The newspaper I got that from didn't print exactly what Annie said, but I'm sure you can use your imagination. The incident was reported to police officers at Vine Street Police Station and a warrant was immediately issued for Annie's arrest. When the case went to court, Jessie testified that she did not live with Harry Gross and hadn't seen him for at least four months. She was questioned as to whether or not she knew Harry was married, to which Jessie replied, Do you think I always ask a man for his marriage certificate when he calls to see me at my flat? The charges placed against Annie Gross were making use of abusive and insulting words and behaviour. Essentially a breach of the peace. Jessie's story lost all credibility once a witness called Margareta Bartlett testified that Annie was at her house at the time she was supposed to have been threatening Jesse with a knife. Annie's defence team accused Jessie of fabricating the story in an attempt to discredit and imprison her lover's wife. She wanted her out of the picture but the attempt failed as Annie was later discharged once the conclusion was reached that there were doubts in the case. That brings us nicely to the evening of November 30th. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Number 2 Coram Street was buzzing as a party was underway to celebrate the last evening of Harry's Ragtime Octet before they set off on a regional tour the next day. Naturally, Jessie was going to accompany her lover on the trip, so she joined in the festivities with the others. The number of partygoers varies from source to source, but there appear to have been 10 altogether, 3 women and 7 men. As the gathering drew to a close in the early hours of the following morning, December 1st, Jessie and the other two women left the men to it at about 2am and retired to their respective rooms. Around 15 minutes later, a series of gunshots were heard throughout the house. Some witnesses claim to have heard four shots, but the common consensus is that three shots were fired in total. Phyllis Dent, one of the other women staying at the boarding house, had only been in her room for five minutes when she heard a noise coming from Jessie's room. Her curiosity getting the better of her, Phyllis opened her door ever so slightly and peered out onto the landing, where she saw a tall woman with a shiny metal object in her hand. The mystery woman suddenly shouted, Stand clear! before raising the object, which Phyllis now realised was a gun, and pulling the trigger three times before making a swift exit. The men who remained in the kitchen rushed upstairs and spotted the same woman hastily leaving the house. Whilst a few of the male partygoers tended to Jessie in her room, the others chased after the shooter, who only made it as far as Bernard Street before collapsing exhausted into a doorway close to the Russell Square tube station. Bernard Street is around a tenth of a mile from Corrin Street, so she didn't get far at all. Apprehended at first by the partygoers, the shooter was swiftly taken into police custody by either PC Dorrington or PC Reynolds, who happened to be walking the beat at the time. Whilst being taken down to the station, the shooter, Annie Gross, said It is alright boy, don't let them sons of bitches murder me They are all poncers It was my husband I meant to do, only she looked under the bed And I thought I had better let it go That sounds like a solid confession, right? Remember that for later Back at the house, Jessie had succumbed to her gun wounds And was taken away so that a post-mortem could take place The examination, which was conducted by Dr. Bernard Spilsbury, concluded that Jesse died as a result of being shot three times. He said, Among other injuries, I found a bullet wound on the outer side of the right breast, which went through the lungs and heart, fracturing a rib. In my opinion, that wound was the cause of death. I only found three bullet wounds, but there were other wounds. I think the wound which penetrated the lungs and heart was the first wound because most of the blood escaped from that one. I just said "wound" six times in one quote. With Annie in custody, it was time to question the party goers as well as landlady Annie Carter. The latter said that one of her male lodgers had arrived home late that night and informed her that the street door was open. That shouldn't have been the case, which implied that the shooter had managed to sneak inside the house somehow. One of the boxers living at the house, possibly Eugene Bullard, a future fighter pilot whose nickname was Black Swallow of Death, had the following to say. I was in the room downstairs making merry with the others, for it was Gross and Jessie's last night in London. A little before two o'clock, Jessie, feeling tired, went off to bed and I went also, leaving Gross and the other men having a final drink. When halfway up the stairs, I heard four shots fired very quickly. I saw Jessie fall at the door of her bedroom and then I saw Gross's wife, with a revolver in her hand, come rushing out of the room. She shouted, clear the way there and ran past me downstairs. I hardly knew where I was for a moment. Then I saw her in front of Gross and pointing the revolver at him. A second later, she was opening the front door and was out of the house. We followed her down Herbrand Street, but suddenly lost sight of her. The police were in the street, and then she suddenly reappeared, and the police took her away. You've got to love the expression, making merry with the others. Sounds far more dignified than, we were having a session, kitchen. Another lodger said, When Annie was captured and brought back to the house, she said something about having done what she had waited since last Christmas to do. She was very unconcerned looking, and I am told that she tried to shoot Mr. Gross when she met him on the stairs, but that her gun would not go off. Annie's gun seems to have misfired after unloading three shots at Jessie, with her other target seemingly being her husband Harry. The day after the murder, Annie decided to make a voluntary partial confession statement whilst at Clerkenwell Police Court. It read, I waited outside number two, Coram Street. There were two or three men went in, and the last one I saw go in, I followed. I put my hands to the door and prevented it being closed. I went into the house and heard my husband talking downstairs. I went into the bathroom. Bizarrely, her statement stopped there. The precise chain of events was only known to Annie, but it's thought that after she snuck into the house, she lay in wait under Harry's bed. She would argue that she was waiting for Harry to retire to bed as he was the one she wanted to shoot, but when Jesse entered the room, Annie was taken aback and in a blind panic shot and killed her. That's certainly plausible, but Annie's testimony was that she was confronted by Harry, who then physically assaulted her, which prompted her to pull the trigger. As far as Annie was concerned, the only one she could see was Harry, and he was the one she shot. It was only after the fact that she realised she had shot and killed Jesse. I'll leave it to you to decide which version of events you think is true. Let me know your theories on this one, I'd love to know if they match my own. Annie wasn't the only suspect in this case you may be surprised to hear, at least not at first. Another pugilist living at the boarding house was Frank Coffee Cooler Craig, a middleweight whose 28-year career ended in 1922 with a record of 78 wins, 51 by way of knockout, 51 losses and 13 draws. The journeyman boxer was 48 at the time of this story's events and got caught up as an accessory to Jesse McIntosh's murder because he was the one who helped Annie Gross acquire the revolver she used to shoot her love rival. It was alleged that he had been the one who persuaded Annie to kill Jesse – which doesn't make much sense, but he was only held in custody for about a week before being released as a free man. Here's what Frank had to say about the gun purchase. I know the prisoner. I saw her between 11 and 11.15pm on November 30th. She came to my place and asked me to do an errand for her. She said, I will tell you when we get in the street. She told me she wanted me to get a gun license for her. I went with her to Charing Cross Post Office and I got the license for her. We then went to a shop where they sell revolvers and bought the revolver and a box of cartridges, and she put them in a bag. I asked her what she wanted the revolver for, and she said she wanted it for protection. The only confusing thing about that quote is the 11.15pm section. Maybe he meant a.m. Frank said that was the last he knew of the transaction. They went their separate ways once the purchase had been completed, with Frank having no involvement in the deal or the murder. Annie Gross's murder trial began at the Old Bailey in early January 1913 and was overseen by Mr Justice Darling. The sob story angle was what Annie and her defence team went for, including the part about Harry assaulting her by way of a punch on the day of the murder after she confronted him about his extramarital relationship. She added to that that the other men in the house were told to kill Annie by Harry, essentially turning the tide from her being a murder suspect to a victim of domestic violence. Whether or not Annie's testimony was truthful or simply stated in the hopes of a more lenient sentence, it's not something I need to dwell on. But as far as the jury was concerned, they believed Annie's story. After pleading not guilty to murder and having the cheek to not wear a hat to court, something one newspaper felt so outraged at that it deemed necessary to report, the jury went away to deliberate. Just over half an hour later, they returned to the court and explained that they found Annie guilty of manslaughter, not murder. The bewildered judge, Mr Justice Darling, said A more pitiable story never was told. The uncontradicted story of how that man brought this woman over from New York, took up with a white woman, upon whose earnings as a prostitute he could live more easily than he could with her, she being black and not so attractive, how he forced her to go on the streets to shift for herself, and how ultimately he threw her off even from that miserable existence and took up with this other woman. I say a more pitiable story could not be told. I read that verbatim, for the record. Whilst handing Annie a five-year prison sentence for killing Jesse McIntosh, the judge said he did not pretend to agree with the verdict, nor would he attempt to reconcile it with the evidence. Upon hearing the verdict and her sentence, Annie was spotted smiling as she left the dock, knowing that she had, quite literally, gotten away with murder. I could only find one article relating to what happened to Annie after her sentence concluded. It said that she was offered the role of a cook by one of two American men who were on their way to being minor stars. Who those stars were, one can only guess. Regardless, no further reports of Annie Gross have been made. If I were to hazard a guess, I'd say she ended up back in America and lived a long and happy life. The same, sadly, can't be said for Jessie McIntosh. And that was the story of murderer Annie Gross. Thanks again, Keisha Blackstone, for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. Please let me know on Spotify what you think. There is a section at the bottom of the episode where you can let me know your thoughts. I've got five new reviews to read this week. Lois left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled One of My Go-To Podcasts. It reads, Stuart is a fantastic example of someone who knows how to tell a story. Great pace mixed with just the right amount of detail, and Stewart's accent seems to add a lightness to the dark stories. I really enjoy the true fact that sounds like bullshit icebreaker, I learn something new every day. Mai left a 4 star review on BritishMurders.com titled Brilliant Podcast. It reads, The podcast is great, been binge watching all week. Only suggestion is to better research mental health issues before talking about them. I notice lots of the terms used are outdated or straight up wrong. Please do reach out and let me know specifically what it is I'm saying incorrectly, as I'd like to correct it going forward. Tom Podmore left a five star review on BritishMurders.com titled Absolutely Amazing. It reads What a podcast. I listen on my way to work and sometimes at work to get me through the slow days. Always really respectful to the victims and their families, as well as giving loads of information on the case. Keep up the great work. Thank you for all the hours of energy. Derek Aynan left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. Hope I'm saying your surname right there, Derek. It's titled Essex Murders One, excellent. It reads, very concise, very well-structured. I will eagerly watch the Sky Show about it. And finally, Zandri Muller left a five-star essay, I mean, review on BritishMurders.com, titled Keep Them Coming. It reads, love the podcast and the crimes you discuss. I am a full-blown true crime addict and I listen to true crime podcasts all the time. I've run out of Australian true crime stories, as I'm from Australia, and I've heard all the big, well known American ones. Binging on British murders at the moment, and I love your accent. It is so refreshing and a good change from the normal US and Australian podcasts. Keep up the good work. P.S. Just listen to the Brian Blackwell episode and the reviews afterwards. I hardly ever leave reviews, but decided now is the time after I had a very good laugh at the review from the guy from the US regarding your supposedly UK superiority complex. How apt that is for this episode by the way. Had to laugh at how triggered he was by who knows what, I sometimes wonder why people listen to podcasts when they don't like the style or whatever and then still take the time to leave a review. Don't they know they're free to move on and listen to something else? Had a good laugh, though. How ridiculous. Your American accent was on point, by the way. Thank you, Lois, Mai, Tom, Derek, and Zandri for leaving the show such lovely reviews. I did also receive a one-star review from someone on Apple Podcasts USA. What have the Americans got against me? I told you, this colonialism, that's why I get shit reviews. It simply read, meh, which is constructive. Cheers for that. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do that on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser, or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave a star rating on Spotify. Just exceeded seven hundred on there. Thanks for that. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me a Coffee, you can find the links for each on BritishMurders.com. Thank you, June H, for buying me three beers via BuyMeACoffee.com/slash/BritishMurders. The message left was great stuff. Thanks. Thank you, hello and welcome back to my latest Patreon members Laura K. Rushton and Melanie Green Couple of familiar names there Please continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media You'll get the episode covered and you'll get a cheeky shout out for your trouble And that does it for another episode and another season Nine seasons down What's going on? I'm going to do a two part special on Peter Sutcliffe the Yorkshire Ripper. But next week, I am going to give myself a week off from writing, but you will still have some content. I'm getting my mate Lorraine Purden coming in, formerly of Once Upon a Nightmare podcast to tell me a true crime story and you the listener, of course. So you will still have an episode next week. Think of it as an off-season episode. The main reason for that is we've got CrimeCon UK this weekend. Hope to see some of you there. It's a very busy time. I'm hosting a panel on the July 2005 bombings. The audio for that panel will be on the show at some point as a bonus episode, so you will be able to listen to it even if you're not attending. But yeah, that's it. Another season done. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.